Welcome to Third Tuesday Conversation, a monthly podcast that focuses on the ministry of faith formation with children, youth, and families in ELCA congregations. Our goal is to engage in conversations that strengthen and empower your ministry world. This podcast is produced by the ELCA Youth Ministry Network. I'm Danica Olson. I'm Adam Butler. And I'm Elizabeth Pedersen. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Third Tuesday Conversation. We've arrived to the last month of 2022. I can hardly believe it. Did you Um, see that video of all those uh, local news anchors saying exactly what you just said? They spliced them all together and they said, I can hardly believe it's (laughs) December already. Can you believe it? It's December already. Are you saying I have no new original thoughts, Adam? I'm just saying it was funny, and I say it all the time. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I do, too. Should we talk about the weather next? I was just about to say, and next up, we're going to talk about the weather, (laughs) because that's what we do. All right. Anyway, hi, everyone. (laughs) Today, we have the extreme privilege to be joined by two esteemed guests, Pastor Sarah and Pastor Manuel, who serve on... The extravaganza team. Is that what you serve on? Is that the name of your, are you on the E team? Okay. Yes. Sweet. Um, and we are going to have, I think, a riveting conversation about uh, ministry in borderlands. The two of them work in Southern California and have some experience with accompaniment and relationship building um, in border places. Mm-hmm. And um, so we've invited them to talk about this very interesting piece of ministry, um, but also sort of the cross-sections about what we are teaching and growing in our young people around issues of immigration and refugees, people seeking asylum. And so I'm going to let them introduce themselves and how they landed where they currently serve. Um, And then I just am so excited to dive into this conversation. So welcome. We're so pumped to have you. And if you'd start out first by telling us the non-Danica version of who you are. <laughs> Thank you. You're on. No, I think you should go first. <laughs> so, I think you should say your role at Extravaganza too. Yeah, I'm the uh, content and program executive director for the Extravaganza. I'm also senior pastor here at St. Andrews. And I started as a youth minister here, as a youth pastor, youth family and social ministry. 18 years ago um, mm-hmm. in October. Um, so I was I was a student at Luther Seminary. I interned at Central Lutheran in downtown Minneapolis. And my wife and I are both from California. And after six years in Minnesota, we were ready to get out and come hopefully south um, and hopefully a little west and um, found myself called to uh, St. Andrews here never expecting i avoided all the youth and family ministry courses in seminary because i didn't want to get pegged for that um but this was a good call and i found myself in the southern most western spot in our continuous united states Mm. so um it's also partly my home my dad was born in tijuana so um i have cousins and aunts and uncles and all that in tijuana and here in san diego as well so I was really excited to be, and my wife was too, to get out of Minnesota and actually come to San Diego. Um, and it's not just about the weather. Um, <laughs> so it, it was, and so doing youth ministry, um, one of the attractions for me was I took a couple trips when I 
was in seminary uh, with the Central Lutheran Youth Group with Carolyn Corneals uh, leading that and with Dave Scher as well. And we went down to an orphanage south of Tecate, which is just inland from Tijuana, um, and, and spent some time down there at this at this children's home. And instantly there was a relationship um, with, well, I felt the relationship between me and the directors there at the Happy Orphanage at the children's home. And so when I arrived back out here um, on my call, I connected back up with that director of the orphanage. And we we started, I started bringing groups down there um, for week-long trips, camping out in the middle of the olive orchards in very rural Mexico and having a wonderful time with the kids playing with one each other. And that is, so my, my, my goal was that these, our youth from St. Andrews who, our majority of whom are white, Anglo, middle-class kids would have a relationship with these kids at this children's home in Mexico. And over time, both visiting, but then also through social media, our kids had this relationship and recognized not only the difference between one another, but especially what things are very similar, what dreams they had, what they wanted for Christmas, that kind of stuff is what really got those kids connected. So that's how I ended up here and why I do the work I do. Love it. And uh, yeah, my name's Sarah Sumner Eisenbron. I grew up in South Dakota, um, but I was sharing with you all beforehand. I didn't grow up going to church. I actually became a Lutheran uh, and joined an ELCA congregation when I was in college. And um, I was 100% convinced when I graduated high school that I was going to be a math teacher. And so um, having no church background and really no Christian education, formal Christian education really of any kind, like growing up, it is a, it's still, I still regularly go, how did I end up here? (laughs) Is a question I ask myself all the time. But um, I went to St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota, and I mainly went there because they have um, a really wonderful music program. And I wanted to be a part of that, even though I knew I wasn't going to be like a musician. And then, you know, at St. Olaf, they require first year religion courses. They require two credits of religious studies. And it was really through those pro- that process that I just fell in love with theology. And then I was in the chapel choir, so I had to go to chapel. Um, so that was part of it, you know, singing the hymnody, being a part of the Christmas fest there and things like that, where, where I think things kind of started to take root for me. And then, um, you know, kind of, I ended up double majoring in religion and uh, English literature. And, and what do you do with those degrees? Um, except for maybe more school. So <laughs> <laughs> my husband was, um, he, my husband, my, you know, boyfriend, fiance in college, but, um, he was thinking about seminary, so we just decided to start applying together. And I applied as a um, an MA student at Luther, and then I think I lasted about six weeks before I said, "I think I'm gonna like look into the MDiv program." And then my husband and I kind of swapped places, at, you know, because now I'm the ordained pastor, and then he's a hospice chaplain, um, and he was consecrated as a deacon, and then now, you know, that's an ordination kind of designation now, but he's a hosp he works in hospice and still does. And then um when it came time for uh I spent a year, we both spent a year of seminary in the exchange program at PLTS in Berkeley. 
Um, so even though my degree is from Luther, I also spent, you know, time at in the Graduate Theological Union. And when it came time for putting down, where in the world do you want to go, you know, for your first call, I put, well, Region 2 would be cool. And then I ended up getting my first call in a small kind of coastal city near San Luis Obispo. And so I've actually served in three calls. And then, you know, uh, Pastor Emmanuel and I did meet in seminary and then got to know each other because we were both connected to youth ministry in Southern California. But I do think it was through working together on extravaganza that we got to know each other better. And then when the senior pastor here was elected bishop, um, I jokingly texted Pastor Emmanuel and said, hey, you know, if you're looking for an associate pastor, like, let me know. And I, I really didn't actually think it would go anywhere. But then 18 months. Most of the stuff he texts me doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> but like 18 months later, I, you know, accepted a call to come serve as a as a pastor here. And that's been uh, that was such an exciting journey. And um, most of my career has has somehow connected to faith formation or youth and family ministry. I actually did specialize in that and take all those classes and and be a part of that concentration in seminary. So. Um, and then I, I serve on, uh, I've been on the, some aspect of the main stage team for extravaganza for about 14 years. Yeah. So I get to be part of, of everything that happens in those ballroom. I've been a stage manager, right, done some of the writing and creative work for what happens on the main stage, you know, worked with the, the speakers and musicians and, um, helped put together the, the experiences that the community has on, in the main stage. That's excellent. It's so good to get to like talk to you all. I mean, we see you, we see you at work when we're at the extravaganza, but um, it's good to be able to hear from you and for our community to get to hear from you. And we're, we're really looking forward to hearing some of the stories you have to share today. So you. you have a unique story to share. So we'd yeah. love to hear about your ministry and what brought you to this podcast today. What's talk? Mm -hmm. what, what are we talking about? Well, yeah, when when uh, Danica had mentioned in a in an extravaganza like an ET meeting about like, well, does anyone have any ideas for the podcast that could be kind of fun? You know, I immediately thought about how we've been involved in ministry connected to border related conversations, immigration, asylum seeking, refugee work, um, kind of in a variety of capacities and. Um, one of the things I think we do kind of as churches is I think we have a tendency to compartmentalize our ministries and we miss that there's a lot of, I think, really meaningful conversations or connections that can happen when we break down those walls a little bit. And, you know, I recognize we're also maybe going to talk about the border wall itself as a part of this conversation because San Diego is located very close to the border wall. Um, and so uh, I asked, I asked Danica if, hey, hey, have you ever talked about kind of the the connection between youth ministry and immigration? And it sounded like that was maybe a new conversation or maybe a new take on the conversation. And and I thought this could be interesting and fun and um, be able to share some stories as well. And I think hopefully put put some human experiences in the midst of I think what has become a very difficult conversation in a lot of contexts. Mm -hmm, absolutely. One of the things that came to mind for me right away is um, we both had an experience um, where we had the privilege and opportunity to um, be present with many, many thousands of children that um, 
during the pandemic time, our the San Diego Convention Center um, was turned into a transitional shelter for unaccompanied minors that were arriving kind of in droves at the border. That's what was being reported in the news anyway. And there was some national media attention on this. And so communities were kind of, border communities were kind of scrambling to respond to what they saw as kind of an urgent need, also recognizing that there was some very ugly, difficult history with family separation. And so at, at the border. And so we both had an opportunity to be a part of the interfaith group that organized um, to be able to provide spiritual support to these children who were there all alone. And then um, we both were there to help lead worship services a few times and just pray with kids and things like that. And then I also just volunteered as a general volunteer in the shelter as well. And so I, as I left and as I continue to reflect on the impact that experience had on me, I thought, why don't we call things like this youth ministry? Mm. Is it because these aren't the traditional church kids? Yeah. And I think Adam named that well, that we tend to think about youth ministry as the, the kids that go to our youth group and any sort of work we might do with a marginalized community as outreach. Mm. Uh, but I wonder what benefit could be had as a church if we change the 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 labels on those things. No, it changes our perspective because sure. we're no longer trying to missionize or convert. It's not a mission trip to convert, mm-hmm. but to be with. Mm-hmm. And also so. a recognition that those experiences work both ways. Mm-hmm. It's been, I think, an important conversation as we think about service-based ministry and youth ministry in particular that we move away from a mindset like, oh, we're going to help these poor people. Aren't they lucky we're coming? Mm-hmm. And um, and to shift it into a thinking about relationship, about, again, breaking down barriers, about opening up conversations and recognizing that 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 that's actually been a harmful, in a lot of ways, a harmful um, framework. For both sides. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting to think about how that plays into like traditional youth ministry models with children, Mm -hmm. youth and families that, you know, I I think if you ask the youth leader or someone who works with young people, if they advocate on behalf of their young people, they'd say, well, of course I do. You know, like I, like I show up and if they're going through a difficult time, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for their, their well-being. But in a traditional youth ministry model, that's that's not really what we're doing in in this in the sense of when you think then about like marginalized communities or immigrants or refugees. In a lot of our context, youth ministry just means uh, youth group and confirmation and like th- what happens when people come into this space. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that that's not all, but that just is kind of largely a, a lot of our uh, model. And so when we, so then when you talk about what it means to like advocate on behalf of another person, that doesn't really fit within that, that structure. And mm-hmm. so then what does youth ministry look like if it really truly does become something where we advocate on behalf of those who are marginalized or dis- disenfranchised? It, it's not going to look the same in every con- in every context, but then that changes the entire model of uh, youth ministry, which is, you know, kind of the place we're at right now of like, what do yeah. we do now? What do we do now? Like, mm-hmm. what is this, what does this thing look like? Uh, this is, I think personally, as you're talking about it, I'm inspired by like just the, you know, I I can't do the same as what you're doing in San Diego in, you know, the suburbs of Minneapolis, but I can think about the model and how that model 
transfers uh, mm-hmm. here and what that might look like. So I'm, I guess I'm intrigued about like what, what parts of it have changed your perspective on just like what youth ministry is at St. Andrews in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we can, I want to step back to some of the foundational pieces of what I was doing with our youth 10, 15 years ago. Sure. Not only were we doing the trips down to the uh, children's home in Mexico, but I was I was also linked to a Southwest Key program, and this was it's a there, there's a couple houses here in San Diego, large homes. Um, Southwest Key uh, serves uh, minors who are um, taken in here that are not documented, um, and so I would take the our youth out there, um, in particular this month of December, we'd go out there and bring gifts, often play soccer with them. But what was eye-opening for the kids, again, like I mentioned about the or the children's home, is that they discovered these kids, all the kids in this program at Southwest Key, every single one of them, the last one said, all I want to do is go to school. I just want to go to school. And our kids were like, I hate going to school. I hate Monday morning. <laughs> yeah. And the other piece of it was, too, that we often think we talk about immigration or refugees or asylum seekers. We think about brown and black people. Mm-hmm. But at the Southwest Key, there were, um, we'd meet Asian children and European children as well. And there was one, in fact, I remember one in particular, there was a uh, woman or young girl from Russia who was like 15, 16 years old. And she was there. And she said, if they don't do something with, if I don't find out what my status is going to be in the next couple of weeks, I'm walking out of here and I'll just disappear into the population. She's like 15 years old and having that much because she said, I just want to go to school and and be here. I don't want to go back to Russia. Hmm. So um, and for our kids to hear that kind of story and they're the same age, you know, so um, Southwest Key was really important. And then just about five years ago, about so we're 20 miles from the from the southern border to Mexico, where the wall is that everybody talks about. Mm-hmm. And 20 miles north, the another program similar to Southwest Key was going to open up a home for minors in the North County. And um, when they started bringing the buses into that space, there were protests and the protesters made the buses turn around with these children inside the bus, turn around and leave. And it was on national news at the time. So that's why this gets to the convention center. One of the advantages of this 2020 COVID was there was nothing going on at convention center. And these children, thousands, the most, the majority of the the ones that were at the convention center were girls. Yeah. Mm. Were at the convention center. And it was open to them because there was nothing going on. We didn't have any conventions. Comic-Con. Yeah, Comic-Con, which is the big one here. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it was quite the blessing that 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 space was open and be able to serve these children. So, but I also want to say it was interesting because again, being a part of the organizing conversations, there was a lot of interfaith grassroots organizing around how do we show hospitality as faith communities to these children as they become as they enter into San Diego. And I want to share the vast majority of these children that ended up spending time in transitional shelter at the convention center did not cross here. They were bused here primarily from Texas. So that's an interesting thing that I'm not sure I can quite explain. I mean, I could, but we don't need to go into that specifically. 
So then as the as the interfaith kind of teams were organized, as we were trying to figure out how to get in there, first of all, background check vetting process to the gills. I mean, I I, I think I had to go through three separate processes to be like governmentally vetted to be able to be in it because it was a governmentally managed space. Hmm. Right. And there was privacy and safety concerns um, around it, of course. Um, and so it was quite, it was quite the process. Um, I had to get like an official badge that I had to use every time I went through. And then, um, they made me give it back, but they didn't make you give your, yeah. (laughs) I was just looking at it. So, um, so it was quite, I don't want to make it sound like we just got to walk in there. We had to make some real commitments to go through everything that we had to go through in order to even just walk into the the convention center. And that actually volunteering there through um, the the way that the government contracted with several local social service organizations. And I just happened to know someone who knew someone that could like put in a good word for me so that I could go through the process to get vetted as a volunteer. Uh, Because not not a lot of people ended up getting to do that. So I felt really grateful, but I do want to say I had mixed experiences and feelings about it the whole time. What, but what I think ultimately I was thinking was, um, was this is happening here in my neighborhood, in my backyard. And I don't, I, I don't want to miss the chance that I might have to see this for myself and to be present in whatever's going on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And again, yeah. when I, as a parent myself, I have two elementary school age children. When you start thinking about these kids arriving here alone, um, going through the process of being going through what's called holding. It's not detention as such as as the holding process after they're presented at the border and then placed in a in a transitional shelter while they're processed for entry into the U.S. of them doing that all by themselves was and knowing that they were here and close um and recognizing I have a call <laughs> as a pastor I couldn't not at least try mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so that's kind of what was motivating me and it was also the very first thing I did after I'd become fully vaccinated and then my very first time volunteering there, I was volunteering with I ended up with a group full of COVID exposed kids. <laughs> she was in the COVID ward. I was so there was a lot. I mean, I just had a lot of it was quite the emotional. And she still hasn't gotten COVID. I haven't. Wow. I did not. Yeah, that was kind of wild. Yeah, I'm grateful for that. So in the in the minor, the convention center was um, only open for that time. It was only like just over three months. And they served close to 2,500 children during that time. So it was pretty amazing to walk into that space and see the thousands of cots. I mean, we I related it to like youth gatherings, you know, because convention center. Right. So imagine that interactive space just full of cots. For sleeping kids wow. that were there on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and again, it was primarily girls and it was a lot. I'm going to say the vast majority of the children that I interacted with were from Central America. And most of them also were probably indigenous. Mm-hmm. And they spoke their indigenous indigenous language. languages in addition to Spanish mm-hmm. and, and potentially some other languages. Mm-hmm. So 
I do think it's important to point out that, that, you know, we go to these convention centers for our national youth gatherings, you know, and this was just a way that a convention center was, was um, holding, you know, holding space for youth in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious about your experience of what accompaniment looks like. How do you, how do you, I assume there's a fair amount of triaging that happens in your brain of like, what is the first need here? What, why am I here? And what possibly could I have to offer? I'm just curious if you'd each unpack your experience in that way of like what happens both in your brain and your heart, but then also like the intersectionality of they speak lots of different languages that maybe are not your own. And Mm -hmm. like, how do you accompany these young ones who are literally by themselves and show up as a God bearer without knowing whether or not they know who God is or yeah. I'm just curious about all of those pieces of what happens in your head and your heart and how, how do you know, or how did you stumble your way through figuring mm-hmm. out what need me needs meeting first? Well, it kind of depended on what capacity I was, I was there for because I had two different experiences, <clears throat> right? I showed up the first time. No one knew that I was a clergy person right? I was just, my thinking at that time was, I am a parent who speaks Spanish, who can do, can try to be present in the room for these kids. That was really the only thing on my mind Mm -hmm. the first time. And I remember um, it was the week before my own children were going to go back to school for the first time in over a year. And, um, that was emotional and it was, um, just, you know, they had only a few more days before they were going to go back to school and the night before. So they were used to me being with them 24 hours a day, all the time, my own kids. And the night before I was talking to them, I said, well, I want to share with you something that I'm going to do tomorrow. Cause when you wake up, I won't be here. And so I talked to them about it. I said, I'm going to help with, I'm going to go be an adult in the room for these kids who have made very long journeys because they are hoping to be able to come and live in the U.S. and be safe and go to school and and grow up here, you know, for the rest of their childhoods. And and they came here with nothing, nothing at all. And they're, they're on their own and their parents aren't with them. And so I'm going to go just be be with them for tomorrow. So you won't see me tomorrow all day. And both my kids had a very emotional response to that. Um, Many aspects of that. And then, you know, so I was definitely thinking about that. And as a parent myself, you know, again, that was one of my primary motivators. I thought these kids don't have any trusted adults with them that they know. We're all strangers. And like, why should they trust us? And, you know, there was a mix of adults in the room. There was, um, with various levels of training or backgrounds. But my my first, the first time I like, cause you have to go through kind of, I had to go through kind of a complicated security process to get in. But like the first time I came around the corner and saw what Pastor Manuel described, which is just like a a sea of sleeping kids. Mm. I, I, I mean, it was extremely emotional for me. And it was my first time seeing that. Again, there, there are probably seasoned staff people who are kind of become familiar with this or, or maybe we're not quite so, I don't know, like deer in the headlights about it. But I, you know, but I didn't have anyone I could say that to. I just had to like pay attention to what I was feeling, you know. So that was pretty emotional. 
um, as well. And then when I, when I ended up with the COVID exposed kids, recognizing like, I didn't know if I'd be like bringing COVID back to my own family and potentially compromising my kids ability to go back to school in person Mm -hmm. after they've been waiting for such a long time, definitely did a number on me. But what ended up kind of breaking through that for me was, like I said, most of these children were girls, although they did try to keep family units together. And so um, there were two girls in my group that I spent the day with who had a little brother with them that they were caring for. So these girls were probably like 13 and 14. And then they had like a six-year-old brother with them. And that was the age that my son was at that time. And the little boy was crying and upset. And there was something in his like cries for help that I think broke through to me where I was able to go, this is why I'm here, you know? So then that kind of something broke through that for me. So I could kind of kick more into gear of being, being able to feel more emotionally present with them for the rest of the day. Hmm. So, you know, I, I mean, as far as like, what does accompaniment look like in that case, I really had, my only goal was just to be present because I knew I could not, I couldn't, I wasn't really. There's also very a lot of rules about what we could and couldn't share about being there for security reasons. So I knew that I was the only time I had with these kids was that time. That was it. And when I left, I would never see them again, you know? Mm-hmm. So there was that experience. And then when we got to come back to be a part of the worship services, one of the things that the kids had requested was um, spiritual support. They actually asked for that. Because a lot of them had grew up with deep faith in their hearts, in their families, in their lives. And so uh, we got to be a part of like an interfaith team that led these worship services several times. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times we got to do it, three or four times. At maybe. least four times. And and almost every time the kids, their kids got emotional. Mm-hmm. When we started singing songs that were familiar to them in Spanish, when we did the prayers, I don't know. It was just, it was a very tender, sacred space. Yeah, I would. I mean, I, um, I, sir, I worked three years as a preschool director and teacher for Head Start in Stockton, California, and um, they, because I was one of the few male students, they put me in the worst neighborhoods. Few male teachers. Yeah, uh, teacher. Yeah. So anyway, um, they put me in the worst neighborhoods, which thankfully were also neighborhoods where my family was. But anyway, <laughs> um, one of the things I've discovered is, you know, through that is. A lot of those kids that I was, the students I was working with had a lot of issues. I mean, there was some abuse, Mm -hmm. physical, uh, emotional abuse. And so I learned from that time how to be kind and gentle, like how to even my body language. So when I entered that convention center with those kids and imagining them having to say goodbye to their families, to their parents, to the older siblings, their aunts and uncles, saying goodbye to them and taking that trek from wherever it was and coming to the U.S. And and what they went through before they got into the U.S. and what they went through after they got to the U.S., all I knew to do was just be as gentle and as kind-spoken as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. Just to kind of bring that, it's a ministry of presence in some way. just to be that presence with them yeah because i don't know we don't know what where they ever felt any kindness in their trek in their journey here 
Yeah, it's just, you know, they've been through things that most of us can't imagine. And right. and that's why I think in the in the worship space, when we were leading them in worship, and it took a it took minutes, I mean, some time before they started getting emotional. Yeah. But that familiarity with the songs and the prayers coming from the leaders that were up in front, I think that was they felt that. And we felt it too. Mm-hmm. There was mm-hmm. there was a spirit about it. So. I remember feeling really intimidated because um, we were with like we we were with a <laughs> priest who was native Spanish speaker, like phenomenal, just a wonderful guy. And it was like second or third time we got to be part of the worship services. And he liked to tease a lot. He was kind of teasing me a lot because I uh, I speak like Spanish with a Minnesota accent, but it works. It works. And um, he was like, "Well, now we're gonna go pray with the kids." And I was like, "What? So what now?" Right. Because before that, we weren't allowed to get that close to them. Well, he just because that was like a rule. He's like, that's what they need. (laughs) So that's what we're going to do. I was like, okay. so so um, but I don't you know, praying kind of extemporaneous prayer like in Spanish was very intimidating to me. And so I would just ask the kids, I say, can I join a pray in Spanish or can I pray for you in English? Because I feel like I can say more what (laughs) what's what I'm feeling in English. And so letting them kind of choose and then recognizing there were times when they couldn't totally understand me and I couldn't very well communicate what was on my heart and what, you know, I felt like the spirit was, was doing in Spanish, but, but yet that connection was still happening and just how grateful I am. I got to do that. Yeah. The, the interesting thing for me, as I'm listening to you both talk about this is like, there, there, there was an element of this that was complicated, right? Like all of oh, the, yeah. all of the things that you needed to go through to get to the place where you were in that convention center. And even like when you're in there, the, the rules you have to follow and the things yeah. you have to be mindful of, there's so much complication there. But then as you talk about the ministry that you're doing and the times where you got to actually do ministry, it's this really distilled down, very simple thing where like manual you're talking about like ministry of presence and like gentleness and like this and and prayer being like the things that they need and then and then sarah you i heard you say that like uh uh being present and showing love because i'm never like i might never see these kids again and like what what does ministry come become when you're never going to see somebody again Mm -hmm. like what what is what is left i mean you can't recruit them to be part of your youth group you can't you can't Uh have you can't have them come to worship you can't rely on the fact that you're going to see them around the community It, it what else is left when it all distills down to like the only thing that i have is is this and uh, you know, as I'm listening, I'm like, what an, what an inspiration. Obviously, I mean, like, you know, you're, if you're, as you're taking things from this, but like, uh, what a, what a unique thing uh, to like work through all the complications. But then when it really, when, when ministry, the rubber of the road, rubber hits the road on the ministry level, it's like very simple, like mm-hmm. human to human presence and like gentleness and compassion and prayer and, I may never see you again, but I hope that you just remember this part of of the journey that you're on. Yeah, but that is youth ministry for me. Yeah, right. There, there should be a complexity to it and risk. Yeah, you know, risk is what that was part of going into a convention center. Yeah, right. Um, and that's part. That's why I talk about youth ministry. It's like this is risky stuff that we do. Yeah. But at the same point, like you're talking about the these children that we were 
at the convention center with our youth. We don't have them that long in our youth groups, in our mm-hmm. congregations. So what are we going to do? What's going to, what can we do as leaders to change their lives and to feed that faith? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? And it's not just about playing dodgeball and capture the flag. <laughs> There's something else that we need to be a part of with our youth. But here's the wild part about, I think I felt so strongly like the presence of the Holy Spirit in this whole journey because, so here's, I'm going to like fast forward really quickly. So th- this all happened in um like April and May, May of June. 2021, June. Okay. April, May. Yeah. 2021, right? Yeah. So this is what's wild. So then we ended up at St. Andrews with no intentionality behind it at all, becoming a transitional shelter for families from Haiti who are seeking asylum in the United States. It's kind of a wild story. Again, it's like one of those moments where I'm like, this has been like, this isn't the, I would always tell people, if this isn't the Holy Spirit, then I don't know what to call the, hmm. this this but whole it, thing. It was, I mean, again, a blessing of this time of COVID yes. for us because our buildings like the convention center were empty. There was nothing going on. Yeah. So, so we, we ended up kind of through, that's a whole other longer thing, but we ended up uh, finding out that there was this family from Haiti that had been released from detention or holding. Um, was it Saturday morning? At the end I of got, May. Yeah. I got the call. It was like around uh Memorial day weekend. Yes. Yeah. And, um, I know because I was on vacation. <laughs> he was the one that got the phone call. But um, but uh, yeah, there was this family from Haiti who uh, had been released again. Uh, and I've had people like kind of argue about this with me because they don't want to believe this is true. But at that time, what happened was if a family had presented for asylum. Now, first of all, this particular family had been waiting for five years, basically homeless for five years in Tijuana waiting to be able to even present themselves for asylum at the border and four and a half of them well yeah so the is the mom and dad there's a there's a little girl who's the same age as my daughter and then and then they have a son that was born on their way to the u.s um and then now they have another baby and they came up from brazil yes so the way so i'm going to switch gears and move to talking about haiti it will connect back to the convention center. But that's only, again, because that that's how I think the spirit works. But anyway, so this family, um, you know, when, when they left Haiti, they ended up, most families from Haiti, as you know, I mean, there's been oh, even recently a lot more news kind of about the realities of Haiti and the like kind of people needing to leave Haiti for for because they're not safe. So this particular family and most of the families that we've now met end up going through Brazil and then journeying mostly by foot through Central America. And then these families actually do present mostly this this particular group that we've met did come through the Otay Mesa, you know, border facility. So which is close here to San Diego. So anyways, they came by foot up through the U.S. They'd been waiting for many years in Tijuana to present. Then after they were accepted, they they would go into holding. And then there's really no right now, the way that our immigration system is set up. There's no like regulations about how long people are in holding. It's completely up to the Customs and Border Patrol offices of that particular facility. So it's not like they know once they say, okay, we're going to accept your application. 
not even that. Once they say we're going to allow you to present, basically, mm-hmm. they go into hold a holding place. And I've never been to these places. I don't know what they're like. I have. Okay. It's like jail. <laughs> and um, it is. And then they they spend however much time there. And then at that time, these families shared that what happened to them was um, they they were released from holding in the middle of the night and then dropped off in downtown San Diego. I describe it like, you know, you get told when you're getting discharged from the hospital and they say you're going to be discharged today, but it'll be later this afternoon. And so they get stuff set like at three or four o'clock. But then once all the paperwork's done and then everybody is loaded onto the bus, it's dark. Yeah. And this has been the custom of our immigration for well over a decade is to bus these kids into our, our bus, the families, individuals into our urban set, centers and open the bus doors and say, here you go. Now, remember to show up for your court date. Right. Now, there are a lot of really amazing social service organizations that I want to make sure get recognized because they are the ones that then pick up pick up the responsibility for welcoming and showing some hospitality and care <laughs> for these folks. This particular family didn't get to have that experience. I can't say why. There wasn't an organization like Catholic Charities or Jewish Family Services um, that provide shelters specifically for migrants. That was they they didn't. I don't know if these shelters were at capacity. Again, I they, there's a lot I can't explain. Yeah. Um, but they had spent the night on the street, and this was a mom and a dad with a older elementary school aged child, a one year old, and the mom was pregnant. Oh my god. And they um, didn't have any place to go. Um, I think that uh, they may have had a night or two in the hotel. They first. Had, that's where I picked them up. They were they had one night and I got the call and said, if you don't pick them up, they're back on the street. You, and so I jumped they were in a hotel. And, they got to go to a hotel. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think Catholic Charities, which is yes, a, a really amazing Catholic social Church. service organization that they do a lot of the primary support of Haitian uh, migrants here in San Diego. They were able to provide like a night or two in a hotel for people. They mm-hmm. and they can do that sometimes. I kind of again, it's like I could talk all day about it. It's a lot. Um, what I've learned since then, but that's been part of my own journey, right? right? Is learning. There's things that you like don't know that you don't know, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like anyways, <laughs> I think we all want to believe that that they have like a warm welcome, but I I don't I I hate to say like that's probably most often not the case. Anyway, so I think Pastor Manuel picked them up from a hotel and and we'd gotten like permission from our leadership and stuff to say like they can stay here short term. <laughs> and I laugh because that was like 18 months ago and we've we've basically been housing people for for 18 months now. Something that we thought was going to be like a two week thing. Mm-hmm. So I picked them up and got them and I had our little Honda Odyssey van, picked them up um, in my broken Spanish, <laughs> told them where we were going, got them in the church and we have a Community center building is what we have. And it's basically just a big block. It's a big box. And there are Sunday school rooms upstairs. So I brought them upstairs, showed them the room that we intended to, to house them in. We And then took them downstairs, showed them the bathroom and the showers that we have. We just have single showers in the, each of the male and female bathrooms. Showed them the kitchen and said, you guys can use all this. What's in the fridge is yours. We'll bring more food. Took them upstairs. And I said... I want you to get some rest. I know that you guys are really tired, but also know that you are safe here now. You are safe. Hmm. And I'll be I'll be back to check in on you. And that's all I could do. Yeah. So 
So, and I'm just going to, and then we ended up housing uh, four different families for that the period of time. time. Yeah. <laughs> um, in our Sunday school room. Yes. In our Sunday school room and our youth room. And that's the one thing I love to say. I have a lot of stories about this, but uh, one of the families we ended up helping like later on. Um, it's kind of a long story, but um, but the mom and the baby were living in our youth room and they the the dad wasn't living with them. And through quite a process, we ended up helping this fam- helping the dad travel here from he was out on the East Coast. That is a funny story. Again, I wish my Spanish was better because he I was I was like trying to coach him through the Denver airport. It, it's just a long story. It was a long story. <laughs> But I was trying to like make dinner and I'm like yelling in the phone, like in my bad Spanish, like I couldn't remember how to say run. I was like, Camina, rapida, Camina, rapida, like walk really fast, like to get because I was afraid he's going to miss his flight. But anyways, and and so and that family had been separated for quite a long time and they were actually reunited for the first time in our youth room, you know, with his new baby. And it was the first time he'd seen his baby. Yeah, because they sent him to Delaware. Yeah, he was out on the East Coast. And she stayed here because... The baby was in the NICU. Yeah. So anyway, but I just, I think to recognize like these that happened in our youth room, again, these are those moments where you go like, I don't know, it's just important. I just wanted to name that space. Mm-hmm. That, that was the, the room that it happened in. Anyway, but we ended up doing this, you know, housing work. And then later on, one of the families that we met, I found out like later She's like, oh, didn't I tell you? I Because she had a, she was pregnant. She had a little boy. She was like, the dad was kind of in and out of the picture. And then she's like, didn't I tell you I have a a, a daughter too? And I was like, no. <laughs> she goes, oh yeah, she's coming here today. I was like, huh? You know, like it was just, but it took come to find out this little girl who I've gotten to get to know since then was actually in a comparable facility that I had, that we had volunteered at the convention center here. She had been through a comparable program in Texas or Arizona. And so the fact that I had like volunteered at this space was was I was so grateful that I got to have that experience because I think it changed the way I interacted with this child when I met her, knowing that that's what she had been through in order to get here and be reunited with her family. So that's kind of how it connects. Right. That's it's like when I start talking about this stuff, I'm like, again, if this isn't the Holy Spirit, I don't know what else to call this journey that we've been on, mm-hmm. which is not a ministry we ever like stepped back and said, let's do this on purpose. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's incredible. But, but a huge part of what we ended up doing with these families was um, learning how to get them connected to the social resources that are available to them, making sure they had rights to like appointments, figuring out how they can make use of the medical care that's available to them through social service support that they get that Catholic Charities, again, coordinates with their caseworkers. Um, But then part of one of the biggest joys to bring it back to what Pastor Emmanuel was saying at the beginning was that we got to help enroll the the school-aged children in school. And just seeing those kids blossom, one child in particular really blossom Mm -hmm. because they were living here at that time. So they got to enroll their daughter in the school that's within walking distance from our church. And even though they don't live here anymore, she still goes there. And our kids that are here at St. Andrews get to see her at school there. And, and she went to camp with us. Yes. She goes to camp. Cool. Other, I mean, a huge blessing for us as a congregation, too, is that we've been baptizing yeah, these they, children. And mm-hmm. the families show up, an extended family that's here, too. So that's been 
that's just been amazing. And the yeah. welcome that the congregation has been able to be a part of um, through that. So, because we did a, we were very cautious about our congregational members. What's the word I'm looking for? Like interacting with the families. We wanted the families to have privacy, to have their own space. So there are very few people that were able to kind of like be in contact with them directly mm -hmm. um, from our congregation, just so that they could feel that safety, not be overwhelmed by us and have by a lot of well-meaning white English speakers, you yeah. know, mm -hmm. right. So that was really important to me. Yeah, that was such a gift. The first time that one of the family members said to me, like, would you baptize our child? You know, and I was just kind of beside myself because it's not like something we ever really talked about. And and I said, of course, you know, and um, and that little boy's name is Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. Wow. So the symbolism of that was not lost on any of us. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Which means God's with us. Oh, oh, oh. thank you. <laughs> oh, an Advent. We're an it Advent, Advent now. Right this now. perfect connection. Gosh. So thank, you. thank you so much for head. telling us that. Cleaning that one up. That's why I'm a pastor. <laughs> they taught you that at seminary, didn't they? <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, I, I think, like, and I guess, like, it's hard to not talk about this without sharing these stories because, I again, it's, like, it's one thing to talk about immigration and, uh, and our immigration system and the process of seeking asylum and the difference between refugees and asylum seekers and migrants and all these different categories. But but it's like a whole other thing when again it's like you can't unsee stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> once you once you start to obviously like know and care about these people and and they trust you enough to start sharing some of their stories with mm -hmm. you yeah. and invite you to be a part of their lives and you know just recently I was at a birthday party for a one year old a my main volunteer that's that stayed connected to things with this particular family and myself were invited to this one year old birthday party. Oh, we just baptized her too, which was really cute. And we were invited to her birthday party and it was just the two of us and a house full of people from Haiti. And I remember like walking away from that experience going, you know, you think you learn some things and then you go through an experience like that and you go, I just, I know nothing. That's how I felt leaving it. I was like, I feel like I know nothing still about what these folks have been through <laughs> about, you know, their stories, their, what they hope for and dream about. And that's very humbling. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, as I listen to you talk about some of the relationships that were created and things like that, obviously, the two of you um, seem to sort of be individually interested in this. And I'm wondering how or if it has opened doors of, and conversations with your congregation about how they are um, agents of change in the systems that are at play or how has it changed the conversations that take place in your congregation or the conversations you're having around what is our role what is our vocation in changing the systems that keep things the way that they are or even just as simple as like what does it mean to love your neighbors yeah right, like who who are we as a church yeah yeah, yeah. and and I have a story about that but I think you're going to see well, I mean, it's it's it has changed the character and mission of St. Andrews. Big time. And it's not, I mean, it, it is partly, I mean, I'm telling my story, I, I honestly have a passion for work on the border because I am a product of the border. And so, you know, over time, I didn't, I had no expectations that we would have these the Haitian families living with us. And I mean, 
what patience I not mean, even on the radar no not at all right. but it does i mean one of the complexities about being in san diego and in southern california but in san diego in particular the border is so close but i always talk about it, it's like the weather if you ever watch the weather on local news along the border <laughs> mexico and any place south is just gray and the clouds and the rain just stop there <laughs> it all happens here yeah. the only thing that happens down there is uh, shootings and kidnappings on the news, and that's, yeah. That's what people in Southern California and San Diego think about anything south of the border. It's someplace to be feared. And so with that fear, they're able to avoid having to experience it. Um, and so this has, it has been a slow change. And there have been those who have dug in their heels and said, I'm not going to, not going to be part of this. Yeah. Because it it's too it changes what I've always thought of the border and immigration. I would say, so. though, we've been kind of overwhelmed by the support and mm-hmm. of the congregation and surprised. Like, I I struggled the whole time. I don't want to make it seem like this has been simple. It's been like, a, you know, I struggled the whole time kind of like how long can the part of my mindset was like, how long can we get away with this before someone goes? I don't want them living here anymore. Like, why are they there? You know, yeah. because part of what we learned was we thought like someone was going to help them find permanent housing. Oh my gosh, that was eye opening. So like we had a, a a dinner where we with with these the first families that we got to know that were staying here, and we had a translator come. And I was like, well, when when you're you know when um you know uh when you when you end up finding permanent housing, I said, well, who's going to help you find permanent housing? They're like, what do you mean? I was like, well, has anyone talked to you yet about like finding housing and they're like who who would talk to us about that i just remember like kind that's of like, a good question i don't know <laughs> yeah i mean it was just like this it, pastor Manuel was on vacation i think at that time right so it was like we kind of tag teamed it at the beginning and had we actually have a really wonderful i don't want to make it seem like it's all us either because it's not it's been a pretty amazing group of volunteers that have helped in different capacities and and part of what the gift is is recognizing the way the spirit has already equipped this community to do a lot of this it's like already here Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been cool to see. Anyway, so when we realized like no one else is going to help them find housing. So when they came to stay with us, we did not know. We thought it was like they'd be here for a couple weeks and then some other organization or group or someone was going to like pick things up from there. Like that's how naive I was anyway. And so when when it became clear, like no one's going to find apartments for them. And so if we if we if they aren't going to stay with us, we will be essentially returning them to homelessness or or predatory living situations if we just say your two weeks are up bye and we couldn't do that i couldn't do that so i don't want to make it seem like it's all like rainbows and sunny days or something Mm -hmm. there's a lot it's been is there's a lot of stress it's hard because you recognize this is life or death for these folks it's not something to take lightly Yeah. yeah and one of the other complexities of it too is when they're when the families are you know, we've got them, we were able to get them housing, but they still aren't able to work. Like, yeah, they don't have legal work permits. Some of them are just starting to get them now. So they're, they, they find work, which means those places that those people who are having them work are taking advantage of them because they don't have their paperwork. Um, <laughs> so, and they, and the government says, yeah, it'll be 90 days. We'll get your work permits to you. So you can, and how, so if they can't work legally, they can't show proof of income. And they have no they apply, rental history. No rental history. And no social security numbers. 
So there was no way they were going to get approved for an apartment without some support or help, just zero. And so a lot of them do end up living in very desperate situations. So it's hard for me is like when you hear people say negative things or critical things about about those kinds of communities that, you know, oh, well, there's 10 families living in this space. It's like, well, what other choice do they have? They don't have another option. Yeah. So our, our car, so part of it was like a little bit of my mindset was like, let's see how long we can get away with this until someone complains. But then the magic thing happened of like, no one complained. In fact, the, the opposite thing happened with our congregation. They turned around and said, how can we help? Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, has that been the most beautiful thing? And, and what ended up doing was they collectively here partnering churches and groups, individuals, um, end up giving, I set a goal. I said, well, I think we need to raise about $25,000 so that each of these five families we're connected to has about $5,000 to work with to establish them in housing, get the deposits and first and last month's rent paid, and then potentially have a little extra in case they need legal support because there's a lot of predatory people who claim they're going to offer legal support that end up just taking people's money. Um, so I wanted to make sure if we that we could, you know, potentially facilitate actual helpful legal support for them. And and I think that money came in most, like I said, primarily from our congregation and a few particularly generous people in like four weeks. It just felt like a miracle. I mean, I it's just like one of these moments where you're just like, how does this happen? Mm-hmm. You know, and again, I was just like constantly humbled by, yeah. by the so goodness cool. in people, the goodness in people. You know, I think you hear a lot about ugliness on this topic, but what I witnessed is so much goodness. And then the other thing that was really neat was um, when we did find them apartments was that was um, the way that we furnished these apartments for them was a combination of like, because they have nothing, they have nothing, right? Was a combination of donations from congregational members. And then I put a thing out. Have you all heard about like the buy nothing groups? Yeah. yeah. So I put a thing out like on a, on our local buy nothing group, which is just for those of you who aren't familiar with that. It's like a Facebook group where people kind of like can share stuff and it, and you buy nothing. You don't, so you, your goal is to like not accumulate things unnecessarily, you know, you can share resources as a, as a neighborhood. It's kind of like this grassroots thing that can happen. You trade up. Yeah. Oh, no, <laughs> not necessarily. So anyways, but I put out on the, on the buy nothing group. Okay. We're furnishing housing for some families from Haiti. Um, and here's all the things we need. And between the congregation and the neighborhood, we completely furnished four apartments in three days. Wow. That's so and that cool. Was, cost us zero dollars. That was just the sharing that happened. And for me, I thought that was such a beautiful moment of partnership between neighborhood and congregation. Mm-hmm. As a partner, kind of in mission, if you will, whatever language. I, I struggle with the missional language sometimes around this, but like, you know, we had a joint purpose, which was to help provide hospitality and care for, mm-hmm. for families, most of whom these people will never meet or know anything about. Mm-hmm. It was such a, so inspiring <laughs> <laughs> and so it was cool. so much fun to like go pick that stuff up. And then, oh my God, it was just like, I felt like Santa Claus or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. Yeah. That's awesome. um, but I used to have countless stories like that yeah. of the goodness that, and the love of God that showed up from mm. people. And so then what our congregation has made the decision to do is, is try to move out of crisis mode and response mode with this ministry and try to turn it into something that has some structure and goals and vision. 
So, and, and I never knew all along, I never knew if the congregation would want to do that or if like they, there would come a point where they'd say, we're done with this. Like, we don't really see this as a part of our identity. And, and the opposite happened. Like the congregation said, what would it look like for us to keep doing this in a way that's has some more grounding and isn't just mm. like the stress of crisis response. Mm. And, and so that's, that's the plan. Cool. And it was included in the, 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 you know, planning for the year ahead is to, and we had our first meeting with the the team of kind of people who are going to support it and build it and lead it from our congregation. And that, that just happened, you know, after 18 months of kind of wondering what's God going to do with all this, it looks like something's going to happen. I don't know yet. Yeah. Elizabeth, you had something. Oh, well, I have, I, I want to try to put my finger on something here. Yeah. Uh-huh. So one last question, because we could, oh, I, I am certain we could spend all day talking about this. Oh, I know. These you stories. Didn't even get to, yeah. Pastor Manuel was going to talk about border immersion experiences. Like next time. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we can definitely have a part two. Yeah. What, what I'm curious about is if, if you can put your finger on, uh, you talked about the vision of your congregation has definitely been impacted and changed through mm-hmm. these experiences. If you could in like, and I, I know that it's more complicated and nuanced than you're, I'm going to ask you to respond, but if you could like put it on, like our, the vision of, of our congregation was this, and now it is this, or it was about oh. this. And now it's about this. What, what, what would you say? I know what I would say. I wonder what you would say. Cause he, you know, I've only been at St. Andrews for five years and this has been a very huge part of half, about half of my time here <laughs> that they didn't call me to do this. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. well, what would you say? No, go ahead. Uh, I want to hear what you're going to say. Well, give me time to think about what I'm going to say. I think this congregation has had a generous heart in giving to these causes for a long time. But I think it's been beautiful to see the shift of like, Mm -hmm. let's fund and support other people who are doing this good work to we are called to do this work Mm -hmm. directly somehow. Yeah. You know, that shift. Yep. Um, And I and this is my like kind of sweet story, because, again, we like talk about like loving your neighbors. I think, you know, we all want to think this happens elsewhere, this kind of stuff, but it doesn't. I mean, one of the families that we that was stayed here actually on two separate occasions as they were kind of in and out of stable housing now have stable housing, like kind of within walking distance of of here. And um, for a little while, I was giving the middle school age girl rides because she was too scared to walk to school by herself. She's a little girl who I talked about who like came through the facility yeah, yeah. in Arizona Anyway, um, she was too, she didn't want to walk to school by herself. I never really understood why exactly. I just assumed she was kind of freaked out, which is understandable. And so I'd give her rides every day to and from school. And one day I was going to be gone. And I said to her, okay, I'm going to be gone tomorrow. I, I, I told her several days, like, we're, I'm going to be gone. You need to figure out how to get yourself to school, you know, da, da, da. because it's walkable, less than a mile. And then finally she goes, yes, I have friends that are going to, help me get to school. I said, great. Who are they? She goes, oh, they're over there. And it was two kids, two boys from her school who are Afghan refugees. And this is all less than a mile from our church. And there's this little girl from Haiti who's trying to figure out how to get herself to and from school. And the people who end up accompanying her, literally walking next to her so that she's comfortable walking to school are two middle school age boys from Afghanistan who recently arrived in the neighborhood as well. If that's not our neighbors, then I'm not really sure, again, then who are our neighbors, (laughs) right? It's literally here in our neighborhood. And these are children. These are teenagers. 
right? And so what does youth ministry mean then? Mm-hmm. When this is the neighborhood you live in, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think like, I think it has caused us as a congregation to wonder about, well, what is loving our neighbors here right now look like? And, and what is God calling us to do? Again, I don't think we have an answer. That was not succinct at all, Elizabeth. <laughs> well, it started to be. Ah, that's right. <laughs> what would you say? Well, I'd start with, you know, when I introduced myself as Manuel Retamosa, a senior pastor, they, people often think that I serve a Latino congregation. Hmm. And that is not St. Andrews. It is, I mean, it is, you could drop this congregation in the in the first ring suburb of St. Paul or Minneapolis yeah. and they'd fit right in. It is, mm-hmm. that's what it is. Um, it's the white middle-class congregation. So uh, coming here and, and seeing the neighborhood change culturally, it is changing. Our cities are changing. Um, our suburbs are changing and our rural communities are changing. And so how do we get, how do we get the, our churches ahead? And that, I think that's what part of what I was called here to do. Mm. How do I get this congregation to get ahead of it? And so being, I did not want to be called the youth ministry, but here I was doing youth ministry. Here you are. And taking our youth across the border in these experiences down there, um, both in Tijuana and Tecate and Alcha Children's Home. And having them experience that so that they're comfortable. I remember the first time that I took our kids with our leaders and I wasn't able to drive. It was like my first year here. And we drove through one of my family's neighborhoods here in South San Diego. And one of the adult leaders said, oh, got to lock the doors. I'm like, this is my family's neighborhood, but it's a Latino neighborhood. Yeah. That is not the case anymore with this congregation. It's taken 18 years. Wow. that is, it's been a very big cultural shift um, and a perspective shift for mm. them. So, yeah. So I think it's just kind of like a movement from like, yeah, we're so glad these things happen to, oh my gosh, what a gift that we're a part of, you know, that we get to yeah. be a part of it. And again, I don't want it. It sound that sounds a, a lot cleaner than it is. It's a little bit, it's been a, an interesting journey. Mm-hmm. So, and I describe it as a patient change. Yeah. <laughs> 18 years. You can't force it. Yeah. Wow. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you <laughs> so much. I'm so curious how you're going to edit this I together. I hope there's some material in there. Oh, it's so good. There's there a was part a, two in store. So yeah, definitely. There was a moment in there where the three of us, I mean, you can, I don't know if you were watching our body language at all, but it was just like being floored by the things that you're sharing with us. And it matters to me. And so, and, and who I am and, and how I see myself as a human and as a leader. And I feel a little bit of like, okay, of course there's more work to do, but I have work to do as a leader. If, if, if we're going to continue or if we're going to even try to figure out the way forward, like it starts with, with us, right. And like who we are and how we see our call to our congregations, the ministry, our world, our communities and all the things. And so thank you. What is our call as a church? Yeah, I mean, I ask myself all the time, like, how did I, again, to bring it back to the beginning, like, how did I end up here? I don't, there's no, I have no particular giftedness or training or anything like that to be doing this. And that's part of, I think, what has been so deeply humbling and something that, like, I try to continue to, like, give thanks for because it's, like, really, it feels like 
a gift. And it's not something I, it's like you got, it feels like a privilege. Yeah. Well, you know, you're holding these people's babies and and speaking these words of promises of God, God's promises over them. And, and when, and, you know, it's like, you go, oh my gosh, like, this is not, you know, this is, um, this is the kind of stuff that it's hard to put words to Mm -hmm. how much it means. Right. When I, when I discover that they trust me like that, that's huge. When they've been through so much, that's when it gets into my heart. Yeah. It just, they they trust me. And, and, you know, and and then their ongoing recognition, like even as they've kind of launched and done different things, there have been times when they've come back to say like, can we help a little bit with this? Or can you come be a part of this gathering or party or, it's just, it's just so, so amazing. So, I mean, and that, and that's why I think I want to like encourage people to, to try to break through this as like some sort of political conversation and think about the reality that these are like God's beloved children that we're called to be neighbors and siblings to, and it's like any, no, no grander purpose other than that. Yeah. Maybe. It's like any othering experience that we've mm-hmm. been a part of once we have relationship and we have real faces behind real stories, exactly. it's pretty hard to look away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, impossible. I mean, it's like I, when I was meeting with someone, I've been doing this work for a long time. She goes, I know the look in your eyes. She goes, you feel like someone has taken you out of your life and your world and they picked you up and they've moved you over here and the world will never look the same to you ever again. I was like, yeah, you're the only person that I have I've heard able to explain exactly what I feel right now that I have no language to describe. Like she finally was able to describe it, hmm. you know, and that that is hard to communicate. But I feel like I want to try. I hope that this conversation maybe invites people to ask some more questions yeah. or maybe break out of the mindsets that they're in about it. And then, you know, wonder about maybe how God is stirring something up for you, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you for leaning in when it's complicated and hard and messy and heartbreaking and joy-filled and crazy-making. Thank you for the witness that the two of you are to the living God. And now I'm getting emotional. Sorry. (laughs) Like this, this is the gospel at work and I'm grateful to have been witness to what you're a part of. And I hope that it's an invitation for those who are listening to step out into something that feels like, who am I to do this work and be reminded that actually none of this work is anything outside of God's activity. Yeah. And don't forget you're surrounded by a community of people that are part, you know, don't forget to look for your the people who are already that you can accompany and get to know and um, be in community with that are already doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I would say has been the other gift is to start to see all the things that already happen that you don't, aren't aware of. And then you go, there are so many amazing people doing wonderful things and, and being a part of that community is a gift too, you know? So don't feel alone at it either. Recognize like there are probably places and organizations and people that you can get to know and be a part of that work, you'll find your spot. I think once you start looking, mm-hmm. if, if it's something you're feeling that tug in your heart about. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. okay. I, you know, this, yes, <laughs> I don't know. There's no end to this conversation because it's, no. it's, it's an ongoing thing. And 
I'll echo what Danica said. We're so grateful uh, to be able to hear some of your story and your witness to how God is working in your community. And I know that it it will be inspiring to those who who listen to it. So thank you so much thank for being you. here. Thank you. Thank you um, all. We do have, I have one announcement for you all today. It is go to the extravaganza. It is yes. happening in the beginning of February in Anaheim, California. Hey, you'll be in Southern California with us. Oh, hey, I'm going. Danica's going. Sarah and Manuel are going. And we want you to be there with us. Um, because we have two people from the E-team, I couldn't, we, could, we would be remiss if we didn't allow them the opportunity to uh, encourage you all to, to attend the E. And so my question for you uh, is why is, does the extravaganza matter to you? Well, <laughs> I think it's not actually that far off of what we've been discussing. I think I just, it feeds me to see other folks sharing their passions and joy and love and their, the way that the Holy Spirit is calling and gifting them. And then, you know, so as a, as a part of the main stage team, like this year's theme in particular, I, it means a lot to me, this theme of enough and the kind of layers of that theme. And then I'm just so thrilled for the people who are, are going to be a part of our main stage ballroom experiences and their connections to the learning tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I love the conversations we get to have there and the care and love that shared the challenge that gets extended to us to keep growing and learning. And this year in particular, I just know we're going to experience that some wonderful things. So I'd love to see you join us. Um, so our, we have amazing speakers. We have this, the group, the many is going to be leading us in some beautiful, meaningful worship experiences. Um, we're going to have brunch church. I think you should come see what that means. <laughs> that sounds uh, fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's food. There's food. Oh. We're going to dance, you know, uh, and we're going to grow together. You know? Daniel, I think I'm going to start calling you Captain Obvious. <laughs> <laughs> that means God with us. Oh, really? <laughs> brunch church oh there's food <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I mean i just you know i i've been an mc before and and i've had that experience of being like on on the stage but like being just in the room means so much to me um and getting to be a part of seeing people just shine and share um who they are with one another so i i think this year is going to be a meaningful year for that and i'm, I'm really looking forward to the time we get together yeah and i would say that from the time, I mean, I've been going to the E for 17 years, I think. And um, I was attracted because church work is really isolating. You feel very much alone. And going to the extravaganza um, allowed me to find my my people, yeah. my friends, uh, my support. And I know that this last few years has been extraordinarily isolating for so many of our people that work or volunteer in our church. And so to come to a place where we find we're going to be sharing stories, similar stories, one another, to find our people that we can we can talk to that speak our language, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so that's why the, the E, I think, is more important than ever for our people that work in the church um, to be together, to share those stories of both grief and loss, but also blessing and hope. Yeah. Um, and so it is February 3rd through 6th, I think that's yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. And I just, mm-hmm. you know, I think we all feel like we can't ever do enough. I mean, I certainly have my feelings times like that when I feel like that, like I'm not enough. There's not enough hours in the day. You know, uh, how could I possibly make a difference in this big issue or whatever? And and to be able to come to this event and just 
here, you know, God says, I am enough Hmm. for you. My grace is enough for you is the message we hope that people get to hear. Yes. Excellent. Can't wait. Yay. Thank you. So y'all be there, huh? (laughs) They already said that. We're going. Captain Obvious. (laughs) We're going. Captain Obvious. All right. You can find out more and register at ext23.org. Thanks so much for listening. New podcasts are released on the third Tuesday of every month. And as always, thanks to Paul Amlin, the 3TC producer, for his work. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. You can say bye, too. Bye. Oh, bye. oh thank you. <laughs> <laughs>